From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade Menezes is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we've got a number for you. It is 1-205-271-2985. And if you are outside of North America, we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one 1- Two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email, openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall producing the program. Our celebrity associate producer today is Zach Gagnon, an intern with us here in the radio department this week. Uh, Matt Gubensky screening your phone calls, and uh, Jeff Burson, magnificent person, handling all of our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Tuesday, our very favorite, Father of Mercy, Father Wade Menezes. How are you? I'm doing great, Jack. Can I tell the other 38 Fathers of Mercy that I'm your favorite? Shh. <laughs> it's our secret. Yeah, what ha- what ha- what is said in Irondale stays in Irondale. There you go. Right? That's exactly right. <laughs> hey, so listen, I have often opined on my love of the church's liturgical calendar, mm-hmm. but I have a question that you can help answer. Why isn't First Communion always held on the Feast of Corpus Christi? Because there's too many parishes, and not many bishops can trilocate, bilocate, quad locate. And, and pastors at the same time. So it's, uh, it, it's good that we start the First Communions, as well as Confirmations, as early as uh, April, <laughs> so that by the time Corpus Christi rolls around, they are receiving Holy Communion, and they understand it full well. But, you but know what some that parishes, sounds like? What's that? An excuse. Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, <laughs> I, think, I think that uh, uh, it's nice to have the children celebrate the solemnity precisely knowing what it's all about. But then again, having received Holy Communion on Corpus Christi can be a very special thing. I was going to say, I'm sure there are some parishes that do it on that very day, uh, depending on how large the parish is, how large the class is. A lot of parishes will have outdoor processions with the Most Blessed Sacrament on Corpus Christi. Uh, The Fathers of Mercy here in Auburn, Kentucky, at our general house, we're not a parish, but we're planning an outdoor procession, uh, doubling with one of our men, uh, Father Ben Cameron, his 25th anniversary of priesthood. Mm. So we're looking forward to this coming Sunday here. Well, and I know a lot of parishes do incorporate into that procession all of those who have received their First Communion in the previous weeks. That's right. They're asked to redress uh, up in their white communion dresses and their little suits, the, the young men and women, and uh, take part in the procession. It's, it's quite a sight to see. It's a beautiful thing to see. And the parents are sometimes in procession with the children as well, right behind the class, and that's really nice to see as well. 
So the Eucharist, after all, is the source and summit of the Christian life, according that to is. Uh, St. John Paul the Great, and you're going to talk a little bit more about that here at the top of the program. That's right, number 1324, uh, all the other six sacraments are ordered towards the Most Holy Eucharist. We celebrate this Sunday the Great Solemnity, the Most Holy Body and Blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, Corpus Christi, Body of Christ, and the Latin is the title of the Solemnity. Uh, whereas the other six sacraments effect the grace they signify, the Eucharist is what it signifies. It is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jack, there at Hansville, the Shrine of the Most Blessed Sacrament, we have the beautiful outdoor 12 stations of the Most Holy Eucharist walk and garden. And I want to comb through those now, showing us how there were Old Testament uh, types or symbols uh, of the Eucharist that would be instituted in the upper room. And then I want to give a, a beautiful reading uh, a, a, from a letter of, of a mother to her anti-Catholic son regarding the doctrine of the real presence. But first I want to comb through this. Uh, Melchizedek, the king and priest of Salem, he was a foreshadowing of a Eucharistic priesthood, huh? The Jewish Passover meal involving the Paschal lamb was also a prefigurement of the Eucharistic sacrifice. The man in the desert was also a prefigurement, a typus, a type or symbol, of the Eucharist to come. It rained down for 40 years on the Israelites following their escape from Egyptian slavery. The old temple was a prefigurement of the Eucharist, God dwelling among his people in their midst, uh, just as we have our Lord in his real presence uh, in our tabernacles today in our Catholic churches, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word became flesh, as the Latin says, and he pitched his tent among us. And a tent in Latin is tabernaculum, where we get the word tabernacle from. Uh, Elijah with the hearth cakes was a prefigurement of the Eucharist, food for the journey as it was. Think of Holy Viaticum at the end of one's life, huh? At death's threshold, part of the last rites to receive Holy Viaticum, one's final Holy Communion. Bethlehem means house of bread, literally in the Hebrew. It was the birthplace of the bread of life, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. The wedding feast at Cana, wherein we witness water changed not into wine, but changed into the best of wine, we're told in Scripture. And Fulton Sheen says, you can bet our Lord probably had some himself after that miracle. That's a nice thought. How about the multiplication of the loaves? Uh, the only miracle of Jesus that appears in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The wonderful and beautiful Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6, which makes it very clear what our Lord's talking about there. How about uh, the Last Supper, wherein the Eucharistic promises are fulfilled with the actual institution of the Holy Eucharist itself? And how about the road to Emmaus following the resurrection, when Jesus is recognized, quote, in the breaking of the bread amongst his two disciples there. Think of the Fraxio at Mass while the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, is being prayed, huh? And then the Marriage Supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation, the book of the Apocalypse, the last book of the Bible, wherein we see how the Eucharist is the pledge of eternal glory, where we all hope to one day be seated down at the Supper of the Lamb, for all eternity from Revelation chapter 19. I want our Open Line Tuesday callers, Jack, today to call in and let us know through a witness um, what the Eucharist has done for them, what it means for them, especially the reverts. I want to invite the reverts to call in and tell us how the Eucharist brought them back to the church and made them stronger Catholics than ever before. 
I want to close this springboard topic, Jack, with a, a wonderful piece on the doctrine of transubstantiation. You know, from the words of consecration onwards at Mass, no longer ordinary bre- bread and wine, but truly, really, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, huh? This is adapted from something titled A Mother's Letter to Her Anti-Catholic Son, a blog by Kimberly Scott that appeared in the National Catholic Register. It reads this, Appearances can be deceptive. Unbelievably, for example, the starlight in tonight's sky actually left some of those stars hundreds or even thousands of years ago. And physicists tell us all objects in the world that appear so solid and so still to us, like the rocks, the trees, and the earth itself, are actually made up of invisible particles dancing in and out of existence. Indeed, life is a mystery. Even the latest scientific discoveries leave us in awe. To believe those particles are dancing in and out of existence is to take life on faith and to view its beauty with wonder. Likewise, to believe those people lying dead in their graves in the cemetery are both dead in this visible world and yet still alive in God's eyes must also be taken on faith. How about helium? How about oxygen? They're invisible, yet they are there. Even gravity has to be taken on faith. You mean to tell me there's an invisible force that anchors us here to the earth and without it, we'd fly off into outer space? You bet there is, even though it sounds like a fairy tale. But whether or not you believe in gravity, you are still the beneficiary of its goodness. You cannot escape from the goodness of gravity, nor can you escape from the goodness of God. For God holds us securely in the palm of his hand, just as gravity holds us securely to the earth. And a thousand denials of reality can never make it untrue. So as the beautiful Tantum Ergo hymn says, Jack, what our senses, meaning the five senses, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing, what the senses fail to fathom, let us grasp through faith's consent. It is really and truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. It still looks like ordinary bread and wine still smells like ordinary bread and wine, uh, still tastes like ordinary bread and wine, still touches or feels like ordinary bread and wine. Ah, but hearing? St. Paul says that faith comes from hearing, and what do we hear at Mass, Jack? The words of consecration. No longer ordinary bread and wine, but truly, really, and substantially the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Most Holy Eucharist. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. 
If you enjoy EWTN's Bookmark Brief with Doug Keck, you can actually receive weekly emails, including a short video blog. It features the author giving a short synopsis of their work in his or her own words. Just visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. Still a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. By the way, back in my college days, in my evangelical Protestant campus ministry days, uh, we had a brother in our fellowship that liked to throw his Bible down on the ground in a crowded space uh, during class breaks and say, It's alive! It's alive! If only he knew about the Eucharist, huh? (laughs) You got that right. And we would never do that with the Eucharist, by the way. I'm not sure I would want to do it with the Word of God either. But yes, the Eucharist is alive. We had a traveling evangelist who wasn't too crazy about it either. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. And with the Eucharist, it, it, it is alive. Uh, it's truly, as I said earlier during the springboard, uh, we believe that it is truly the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ made present again in an un- unbloody manner at the holy sacrifice and banquet of the Mass. Uh, that one sacrifice from that first Good Friday that we call Good, Good Friday, made present again in an unbloody manner, and bringing us the Eucharist. Listen to this. This is by uh, a, a, a Catholic gentleman who's on the Catholic speaking circuit. I've, I've had the privilege of, of speaking with him at different conferences over the years named Vinnie Flynn. He says this, The Eucharist is alive. If a stranger who knew nothing about the Eucharist were to watch the way we receive Holy Communion, would he or she know this? When you and I approach the Eucharist, Does it look like we believe we are about to take into our bodies the living divine person, Jesus Christ, true God and true man? How many times, O Lord, have I forgotten that the Eucharist is alive? As I wait in line to receive you each Sunday or even daily in Holy Communion at Mass, am I thinking about how much you want to unite yourself intimately with me? Am I seeing your hands filled with the graces you want to give me? Am I filled with awe and gratitude that you love me so much as to actually want to come to me in this incredibly intimate way? Or am I distracted, busy with other thoughts, preoccupied with myself and my agendas for the day? How many times, O Jesus, have I made you sad, mindlessly receiving you into my body, into my heart, with no love and no recognition of your love? How many times have I treated you as a dead object? The consecrated host that we receive in Holy Communion is not a thing. It is not a wafer. It is not bread. It is a person, a divine person, and he's alive. So a nice meditation there from Vinnie Flynn on the doctrine of the real presence and our demeanor uh, when we receive our Lord in Holy Communion and how we should receive him, and do our best to recollect ourselves. You know, Jack, I like to remind my listeners, this is one of the reasons why we come to Mass early, to kind of recollect ourselves before Mass even begins, to recollect ourselves in the pew. We want to just be become prayerful and get ready for the Holy Sacrifice and Banquet of the Mass. Also, we want to make a particular willed intention as to what we wish to offer this Mass for through our baptismal priesthood, in union with the priest celebrant's ministerial priesthood, so that the words of offertory, we'll hear the, the pre-celebrant say this, Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours 
and your sacrifice, laity, huh? that they're able to offer through their baptismal priesthood, which is not a sacrament like the ministerial priesthood is, but it is tied to the sacrament of baptism. And both, both priesthoods, both the baptismal or common priesthood of all the baptized and the ministerial priesthood, which is the sacrament of holy orders, both partake in the threefold office of priest, prophet, and king. So Corpus Christi is this coming Sunday. This coming Sunday also kicks off the USCCB's three-year Eucharistic campaign to promote the doctrine of the Eucharist here in the United States. I invite our Open Line Tuesday listener callers this hour live to call in and give a witness about how the Eucharist has touched you in a very special, profound way. Maybe you're a revert back to the faith. Maybe you're a convert to the faith. Maybe you've always been a practicing Catholic ever since childhood. Praise God. How has the Eucharist touched your life? How has it made you grow stronger in the faith, etc.? You know, Father Wade, just for the record, when you're my size, it doesn't take a lot of faith to believe in gravity. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. You're you're thinking about that previous meditation I gave. Yeah, I am. I am. <laughs> cut me, cut me deep, Father Wade. Um, first up today is Ellen in New York City, listening on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Ellen, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad to talk to someone who knows. They're doing. Um, I am a volunteer ESL teacher. I teach English to refugees who come, you know, because there are a lot of them that come in, in this area. And I sort of stumbled on working with mainly Muslim people who have many questions about uh, certainly our culture, but mainly they wanted to know what Christians believe. And so I, I asked them if they would like to read the Bible to study English, and they said, yes, yes, yes. So I've been doing this for quite a while, about two years, but in, during the course of teaching <laughs> what the Bible says, I have a lot of conversations and, and uh, to try to share what Christians believe it. And it, it, it's not always easy, because mm-hmm. some of our concepts are different. And so I have a question about... Um, what is a prophet? Because my understanding of a prophet is from our major prophets in the Bible, you know, and the minor prophets that are in the Bible. But, uh, like, I want to know, is Abraham a prophet? Is Moses a prophet? How do we, how does Christian, how do we define what a prophet is? Okay, great, great question, Alan. Thank you so much, and thank you also for your witness to the faith, to those you're working with who are not Christians. You're living your baptismal mandate and your confirmation mandate, and I I commend you on that. In Christianity, the figures widely recognized as prophets are those mentioned precisely as such in the Old Testament and New Testament, according to our Catholic canon of Scripture, a total of 73 books, uh, which was decided upon that canon at the Council of Carthage in 397 AD. It is believed that the prophets are chosen and called by God per se for a particular task. So you are right. There's two categories of prophets, the, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And I won't, I won't spend a lot of time going through the two lists, because that's easy enough to find at like catholic.com or ewtn.com in the frequently asked questions section. But, but I will tell you this— um, any Old Testament book 
named after an individual, chances are that individual is a prophet. But even beyond that, you have an you have a other cast of characters, another cast of characters with within books that are seen as prophets, even though that particular book is not named by them. So through the the church's exegesis, by the work of her scripture scholars, by the way of her sacred tradition, for example, in the magisterial pronouncement on the canon, the 73 books of, of the Bible, we know the list of the major and minor prophets. But for example, Aaron, yes, Abraham, as you asked about, um, uh, Amos, uh, even Anna, don't, don't forget the female figures as well, Daniel, David, Deborah, um, in, in, in the E's, I'm looking at a brief list here, we have Elijah, Elisha, Enoch, Ezekiel, and Ezra. The list goes on and on. Habakkuk, uh, Haggai, uh, Hosea, Isaac, Isaiah, Ishmael, uh, Jacob, Jeremiah, uh, even Jethro had a role, even though there's no book named after him. Uh, now, we believe as Catholics that the, the line of demarcation between the Old Testament and the New Testament is with John the Baptist, because he was preaching before Jesus came, and he was preaching when Jesus came. So with John the Baptist, we end the line of the scriptural prophets. Now, Jesus is the prophet par excellence, the God-man Jesus Christ, but he's a divine person with two natures, human and divine. So as far as the, the, the fully only human prophets go, we have John the Baptist and before there are none after John the Baptist. Um, so a great question. You know, we have Malachi, we have Melchizedek, we have Micah, Moses. You asked about Moses, just as you asked about Abraham. Uh, Nathan the prophet, who's actually in the readings of this week for the 11th week of Ordinary Time. Obadiah, uh, Samuel, the, the list goes on and on and on. And you can find it at any good, reputable Catholic uh, site. You know, I'm thinking right now of Ascension Press. I'm thinking of Catholic.com. I'm thinking of EWTN.com, where you can find a good synthesis of the major list of prophets and the minor list of prophets, uh, referring mainly to what their work was and what their work involved. So Elijah and Isaiah would be considered major prophets, huh? Um, Enos would be a, a, a minor prophet. So, uh, you know, it's great that you're witnessing to others about the Old and the New Testaments and the prophets therein, especially in the Old Testament, but including and ending with John the Baptist. So great question, great biblical question. Thank you so much, Alan. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Next up is Diane in Owensboro, Kentucky. You ever been there, Father Wade? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's our diocesan sea <laughs> city. Watching us on YouTube today. Diane, you're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. This is Diane. Hi, Diane. Is, is this Diane Hayden? <laughs> yes, Diane Hayden. <laughs> well, great. Well, thanks for your call today from Owensboro. Yes. I just wanted to say that the Eucharist means a lot to me, and I'm so happy that I can receive him now every day into my heart. And I well, feel so awesome. intimate and so close to him. <laughs> Diane, can you give a witness about how you recently made a move uh, after the big tornado in Mayfield, which you survived, uh, how you made a move to Owensboro to the Carmelite nursing home there, and how you're living there in the section that's, ass that's assisted living, and how they have Mass every day in that beautiful chapel, and how it, it is able to feed your faith because of daily Mass and daily reception of the Eucharist? Yes, we had a tornado where I live. And uh, I was survived, 
uh, me and my sister were in the closet, and she was really losing it. And I just kept praying and praying out loud to Jesus. And uh, he just calmed me. And then I prayed, and uh, I got here at the Carmel home. I didn't have a place to live, and yep. I'm just really thankful for this. And it's quite miraculous. And mostly because I can receive him. Yeah, amen, amen. And they have a beautiful chapel there at the Carmel home in, in uh, Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, and uh, Sister Frances Teresa kind of oversees things there, and she does a fantastic job. And it is a beautiful chapel. They redid it here, actually rebuilt it completely, probably about 10, 10 years ago now. And it's a beautiful chapel done with the Carmelite saints uh, in imagery, and it's just very, very beautiful. Diane, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for your love and devotion to the Most Holy Eucharist. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Edward in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Brad, uh, Brad is driving through North Dakota. Jim in Eastern Washington, and we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next stop is Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Edward is in Florida listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Edward, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, Father Wade. How you doing? Good, Edward. Thank you for your call today. Hey, listen, uh... You wanted to hear from people who uh, had the Eucharist bringing back to church. That's what happened to me. I'm Praise 75. God. I graduated. <laughs> I graduated from high school in 1964. So it was go to Vietnam in the army, or join the Air Force and Navy, or something. I went in the Air Force, but I was born and raised Catholic. My family is staunch Catholics. Every Sunday mass, you went whether you wanted to or not. When mm-hmm. I left home, I left the church. I didn't go to mm-hmm. church. I went uh, off into the military. Ended up in North Dakota. I ended up volunteering to go to Vietnam just to get out of North Dakota. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, anyhow, my life was a train wreck from then on. I did all kind of bad things you're supposed to do. I, of course, confessed all my sins since then. But I was away from the church. I came back. I got married, started having kids, and I realized I remembered my Catholic upbringing. I thought, you know, I really got to get these kids back in the church and raise them in the church. And I said, well, I don't know. I'm not too sure about Catholicism. I was working with Jehovah Witnesses and all kind of other people. And I thought, oh, I'll go to Jehovah's Witnesses meeting with you. And I did that for a while. And then I went to my friend's church. So you were Baptist. And I went to the Baptist. I even got baptized in the Baptist church. It's not realizing that once you're baptized, you're baptized for good. But then I went to the Presbyterian church for a while. I took the Old Testament courses in a junior college. And uh, I took theology in the, in the Catholic college and uh, a course on theology and and I started, and it was a Catholic college, and they had daily mass at noon. So I started going to, back to church at daily mass there. Beautiful. And I and I realized what I was missing. And I was missing the body and blood of Christ. Amen. So it was through the uh, your attendance at mass, even daily mass per se, that slowly started tugging at your heart. You know, uh, number 1323, uh, Edward, of the Universal Catechism says, at the Last Supper on the night he was betrayed... Our Savior instituted the Eucharistic sacrifice of his body and blood. This he did in order to perpetuate the one sacrifice of the cross throughout the ages until he should come again. 
and so to entrust to his beloved spouse, the church, a memorial of his death and resurrection, a sacrament of love, a sign of unity, a bond of charity, a paschal banquet in which Christ is consumed, the mind is filled with grace, and a pledge of one's future glory is given. So, you know, how we treat our Lord now uh, via the sacramental economy of the church, uh, and the Eucharist, of course, is the source and summit of that sacramental economy, how the seven sacraments fit into the Paschal mystery, the four-event event of our Lord's passion, death, resurrection, and ascension, uh, has a lot to say uh, about our afterlife. You know, the old maxim, how, how you live, so shall you die, huh? And, uh, you know, I've met individuals in airports. You know, I'm in my clerical suit traveling, and I'll have a fallen away Catholic come up to me, and they start talking to me, and, and you can tell their conscience is pricked. And you just want to be there for them and give them a listening ear, and you want to let them do the talking. As the priest, you want to just let them do the talking. Maybe their plane is an hour and a half off yet from taking off, and the same with mine, and maybe our gates are side by side, or maybe we're on the same flight. And uh, you hear them out, you hear their story, and, and you hope that they'll ask you for confession. They don't ask. You're, you're able to witness about confession. Finally, as the priest, you come and ask them, would you like to go to confession? We can do it right now. And they're just not ready yet. And it's so sad because all it takes to get back to the Eucharist is a good, holy confession, depending on their life situation, of course, you know, whether or not there's an invalid marriage in place or whatnot. But for the, for the most part, you can still witness to them, but they're just not there yet to accept the truth. But we want to get back to practicing those two sacraments of the seven, the only two of the seven that can be received over and over and over again with much frequency. The other five cannot. Eucharist and confession can be received over and over and over again. Why? Because these are the two sacraments that sustain us in our vocation and daily life, right? Um, matrimony, uh, you know, you can receive it again, but it wouldn't be daily. So if your spouse dies, you know, you can remarry. Um, how about baptism and confirmation? Holy orders received only once. How about anointing of the sick? Well, you can receive it again, but it wouldn't be daily. We can receive the anointing of the sick whenever one begins to be in danger of death because of sickness or old age. But Eucharist and, and, and reconciliation, holy confession, yeah, bring it on, bring it on. You know, we want to practice those two sacraments regularly and faithfully. Sunday Mass, if not more often during the week, if our schedule permits it, to receive the Eucharist more during the week, and monthly confession. I'm a huge advocate of monthly confession. In fact, for clerics and consecrated religious who are on the front lines of battle today, uh, you know, in society, in the culture, I recommend that we priests, whether diocesan priests or religious order priests, and consecrated religious men and women, you know, brothers and sisters in religious life, I recommend we all go every two weeks to confession, just because we need the graces more to feed our flocks and those we have... Uh, and uh, we have the ability to make an impression upon through our evangelization work. But for the laity, single and married, I recommend don't let confession go past a month. And here you, you gave a witness about confession, I noticed. You said, of course, you got back to confession in your process of getting back uh, to the church, and that's a beautiful thing. And to, to witness a little bit, if you can, Edward, about your, con your confession, not, not in regards to matter, religious, uh, sinful matter, I'm not asking for that, but just what it meant to come back after making that confession of a so many year lapse, what did that one confession do for you? Can you witness about that just a little bit? Yeah, that I, I went back to that one confession. I tried to think of everything I did uh, that wasn't uh, proper without saying it, and I, I, it was such uh, such a relief. You know, it's like psychologists will tell you when you 
when you confess all your sins and you confess to somebody, even if you're not a Christian, you go to a psychiatrist and talk to them and tell them all the bad things to do. It's a relief of your your soul, your body, your mind, and your heart. You feel so good. When you I started going to confession every week. I loved it so yeah. much. So You know, it, it's a known fact that St. John Paul II and St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta went weekly, and, and chances are you can bet it wasn't because of mortal sin on their soul. They were going weekly for the graces of what's called a devotional confession. A devotional confession is still a bona fide confession. The adjective devotional simply means that there's, there's only venial sin confessed. You know, there's no mortal sin to confess. Um, mortal sin, the ordinary way to have it forgiven, is the sacrament of reconciliation, holy confession. For venial sin, there's, there's multiple ways that we can have venial sins forgiven, and, and confession is one of those ways. And so we see the lives of the saints, the saints taking part in confession weekly, uh, just for the devotional value of it, to receive graces from the sacrament on a weekly basis. Every time we receive a sacrament, we receive the graces particular to that sacrament, a particular grace that the other six sacraments do not effect in the person's life and soul. Only that one sacrament does it. And so, uh, you know, the benefits of a regular Eucharist received, the benefits of a regular uh, confession received. Thank you so much, Edward, for a, a great uh, witness call from Fort Lauderdale, Florida today. Thank you so much. You know, back in the day, Edward went to volunteered to go to Vietnam to get out of North Dakota. Brad is now driving through the great state of North Dakota, listening on Real Presence Radio. Brad, you're on with Father Wade. Good afternoon, Father Wade. Thank you for taking my call. Thank you, Brad. Are you glad it's not the winter months right now in North Dakota? Uh, yes, the roads are clear. It's not raining currently, and the sun's shining. It's a little warm up here for North Dakota this time of year, but it's a lovely, lovely day. Well, that's great. What can we do for you, well, Brad? Well, um, my story of I'm a recent convert. I've only been, I'm still a baby in our, our Catholic church. Um, I just recently converted in Easter Vigil of 2018. Um, and so my story is similar to the gentleman that was just on the air, except for I'm not quite as old as him. Uh, but basically, the only two times I had church in my life with my mother and father was once when I was like in first grade in Orchard, Nebraska, at a Lutheran church, and went with my mother, I believe. Um, and then the next time we went to church when I was 12 and a half was at my mother's funeral. Mm. And so, of course, then I, of course, then my father was a uh, World War II veteran, right. and he unfortunately was had a very bad drinking problem and so forth, and and uh, we didn't go to church or anything, and um, it wasn't too much after that that there was another woman come home with him, and here the Noah story goes that here I walked downstairs in the early morning that. Um, and there my father is in the bedroom. And well, anyway, the Noah story fits into there. And so it's like, well, okay, that was different. And, of course, 12 and a half going on 13, you don't know what's going on. Right, and so right. we had no church or anything after that. And, of course, him being an alcoholic, that's kind of where my life was, was uh, alcoholism and things. And the military was all, I went with, Army, Army military it was in Korea, uh, Colorado, and, and uh, of course there was the 
alcohol, of course, all the time and so forth. And, and uh, of course, and it was all of the other things that went along with it. Being and in so the was, it, was it these negative things going on in your life that brought you back to your practicing the faith? Well, no, it wasn't. It was when my wife was, uh, after my wife completed her cancer treatments and her surgeries and uh, all of the stuff that went along with that, um, that she went to a what's called a Kintern retreat in uh, O'Neill, Nebraska. Oh, no, wait a minute. Not O'Neill, Nebraska. Uh, which just west of Neely or east of Neely, Oakland, Nebraska, Oakdale. So there was a Kintern retreat, and so after her completion of all of her medical treatments, she went to this Catholic retreat. And then, so she met Father Christopher. She'd come home from that, and we haven't been gone. We hadn't been going to church for several years because we were Baptists at the time. And of course, they were always destroying what the Catholic birth, the Catholic religion to teach, you know, or were trying to teach. So, no church, no church all my life, pretty much, you know, and then them two times in the Baptist church. She'd come home reading and and reading the Bible and writing, and it's like, okay, what got into you? She said, the Holy Spirit. And I said, oh, okay, because my wife was a cradle Catholic, but she was not practicing. And so she was away from the church. She told me that she was going to go to the uh, Catholic Mass the following Sunday. I said, okay, I'll stay home because I don't know anything about it. You just go ahead. That's fine. But if you can, ask that priest if he'll come to our home after Mass. And so it was the late Mass, 10 in the morning, so the priest was finished with his obligations. And so then he'd come into our home after Mass and introduce himself, Father Christopher from Nigeria. And he said, good afternoon, Brad, or good morning. And he said, I just have one question. He said, how many churches did Jesus Christ start? And of course, my <laughs> mouth fell to the floor, and I said, I have no idea. He said one, and then he began to explain about the Catholic Church, the Apostolic Church. And I thought, well, that sounds way a whole lot better than what the Baptist pastor was talking about. So well, so, well, that's that's a, certainly a beautiful story that led you back to the church, Brad, but uh, I think you had a, a specific question about something that goes on during Mass. Yes. Um, when we say our, our Father prayer, when we pray the Our Father prayer, at our parish we open our arms wide and raise them up to the Lord, and our wife and I hold our hands like all the other parishioners, or most of them, mm-hmm. as the priest is doing so. And on one of the Catholic websites that I follow on Facebook, the Truth to Catholicism, one gentleman made a, a comment about that we're not supposed to do that because that's yeah. taking away from the priest and that he's the one that's supposed to do that. He called it something about a position of orum or something. Yeah, or yeah. the oron's position. Yeah, technically, technically, the the lay faithful in the pews holding their arms and or hands up or out during the Our Father is nowhere rubrically in the mass of the Latin Roman Rite. It's nowhere to be found. It's an innovation from the early to mid-1970s that has technically become a custom, according to canon law's dictates of what what qualifies as a custom. That said, uh, it's foreign to the Roman Rite. 
uh, a bishop has the right to ask that it not be done, and a pastor has the right to ask that it not be done, and the faithful should oblige that because it is foreign to the Roman rite. During the Our Father, the priest's arms and, and hands are out in what's called the orans position, O-R-A-N-S. That's the Latin phrase in the English gerundive, praying, P-R-A-Y-I-N-G. The orans position of the priest is the, is the praying position of the priest, where he's offering the prayer as Jesus, Jesus taught us how to pray. He's offering it to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, on behalf of the people as their sacrificial leader. That's what is happening at that moment of the Mass. So, has it become custom? Well, according to canon law's dictates, it has. Is it technically right to do? No, it's not. Uh, can a bishop ask that it not be done in his diocese and mandate that fact? Yes, he can. Can a, can a priest mandate that it not be done? Yes, he can. So uh, it's one of those conundrums where uh, ultimately it's up to the deacon and the bishop, but I can tell you this with absolute certainty. It is nowhere found rubrically, meant as a rubric, in the Roman rite as a description of something for the laity to do. It is not. And I think personally, uh, keeping in, in, in line with the Church's thinking with the sacred liturgy, I do think it takes away from the priest's leadership at that particular moment of the Mass. We have to be careful of the clericalization of the laity and the laicization of the clergy. If the people are doing that with the priest, it takes away from the priest's solemn, pivotal role, singular role, as leader, leading the people at that very precious particular moment of praying the prayer that Jesus taught us when the priest himself is acting there at that moment, as he is throughout the whole Mass, in persona Christi capitis, in the person of Christ the head. And the laity should, should respect that moment as the priest's moment of, of leading us. Uh, but it's, a, it's a, an innovation from the early to mid-1970s that has rooted itself in, according to custom in some areas, not just in the United States, but across the globe, but it is nowhere to be found as a rubric in the Roman Rite. Great question uh, on the liturgy, on the celebration of the Eucharist, during this time of preparing for Corpus Christi and the three-year campaign of our bishops here in this country. Thank you so much, uh, Brad. We really appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. You know, as baptized Catholics, we are all mandated to be evangelists, and one of the best evangelists we have in, in our day and time and here in the United States is Peter Herbeck, and you can get some evangelistic tips on the new evangelization mm. from Peter every morning, Monday through Friday, Fire on Earth, right here on EWTN Radio, 5.15 a.m. Eastern Time, Make it a penance, make it a discipline, make it a an hour of heroic virtue for you. Set your alarm, get up, 515, listen to uh, Peter Herbeck, Fire on Earth, Monday through Friday, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Deacon Jim, a first-time caller in eastern Washington, listening on Sacred Heart Radio. Deacon Jim, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. How are you doing? Doing great, Deacon Jim. What diocese are you in, Deacon? Um, the Yakima Diocese. Okay, great. Wonderful. So, you guys having some nice weather there yourselves? Well, we are. It's just, um, it's been a really off spring, you know, yeah. a lot of wind and rain, which we're not used to. We're, we're mostly, well, we're, we're windy in Ellensburg, where I'm, where I'm at, where I live, but, uh, but for the most part, we're a desert, so we're not used to this wet stuff. It's normally right. over in Seattle. 
<laughs> yeah, it's same here in the South, here in Kentucky, uh, South Central Kentucky, uh, North Central Tennessee, what's called the Tuckasee region. Uh, Nashville is just about 55 miles south of us, and it's been very windy and, and cool and, and rainy. And just the last couple of days, it's been warm as usual, like it is normally this time of year. But otherwise, it's been like you you guys have been having. How can we help you there, Deacon? Right. Well, the um, I was just calling um, because uh, I, I, I heard you, you know, earlier, um, both of you mentioned about of a profound moment in your life, you know, when the Eucharist... Um, when Christ present, you know, in the Eucharist really stood out to you. And I actually have, um, it was a moment in my life years ago. Oh man, it's, it's been now almost 21 years. Um, I got a phone call from the hospital about my dad who had, um, his entire life. He had, he had, um, a, was born with a poor heart. And, um, so I had suffered his, his entire life with, uh, you know, with bad heart disease and and then complicated as well with, you know, some poor habitual habits mm. and smoking and whatnot. And so I went to the hospital and, um, of course, the news was by the doctors was very grave. Um, so I went into the room with him and uh, these were his final moments. But I was um, finding it difficult to look into his eyes. I could, I could only just grasp his hands and because of his heart you know, his hard life and difficult life and the fact that he was dealing with congestive heart failure, his hands were um, very worn, um, even though he died at a very young age, but very bruised and um, battered. And uh, But I felt embarrassed, so I, I kept leaving the room and finally um, um, called a very good priest friend of mine in the Seattle Archdiocese. And, mm-hmm. and of course... Um, I talked, he mostly listened, but I remember the last words that he told me, and and, uh, he said, Jim, he goes, "Um, remember that Christ will never abandon you in your moment of of weakness and difficulty and pain, and know that he will reveal his love to you within this sorrow. Mm. And so I hung up the phone with him, but to be perfectly honest with you, I wasn't... I wasn't really happy with what Father, you know, the words that Father gave me, and but I did go back into the room, and uh, obviously through the prayers of Father and his concern and his, you know, his, his willingness to listen to me, I was able to look at my dad and look look into his eyes and be with him and pray with him and um, in his last moments. Well, it was about a week after he passed, and I was at Mass, and this is um, still very, very profound in my life. Mm-hmm. But I was going up and um, to receive Holy Communion, and when the priest placed Christ present in the Blessed Sacrament in my hands, immediately... I saw my dad's, the memory of my dad's bruised and battered hands came to me. And at the same instant, Father, the same instant, I saw Christ's glorified, crucified hands. Mm. And I felt an immense joy. An immense joy that even to this day, especially while assisting on the altar, um, 
that I feel immensely, so much so that it almost knocks me over. I really have to hold my composure. Um, so it's profoundly, it's a- even 20-something years later, it's equally as profound. Deacon, it sounds like you received a particular grace uh, after the fact, after your father's passing, uh, to give you great consolation and peace about his passing, and at the same time to strengthen you in your faith, in your Catholic faith. Were, were you a deacon yet? I'm curious if you were a deacon yet at that moment. No, I wasn't a deacon. I'm, I'm fairly newly um, ordained in 2019 okay. of December. Okay, well, congratulations on that. But it sounds like, you know, I'm not, I'm not your regular confessor or your regular spiritual director, but, you know, it sounds like, like you received a particular grace, and not only for the comfort of, of your father's passing to receive that comfort, but also to strengthen you in faith by way of the Eucharist um, and, in, and strengthen you in, in, in your belief in our Lord and in his church, his bride, which feeds us through the sacred liturgy. Thank you so much, Deacon, for a, a great witness call. I call that a witness call, and, and thank you so much for that testimony on the Eucharist. We really appreciate it today, and, and may these three years of Eucharistic uh, promotion through the USCCB uh, continue to feed you abundantly in your new diaconate um, uh, vocation as, as a deacon. God bless you now. Take care. Thank you, Deacon. We appreciate that phone call. By the way, just in the, in the little bit of time we have left here, John in Naples, Florida would like to know, is missing Mass a mortal sin anymore? Of course it is, and thank goodness it is, because I have a God who tells me exactly what I need to attain salvation through His Bride, the Church, that speaks for me. But always distinguish, right? Simper distingue. What makes a mortal sin? Grave matter, done with fullness of knowledge— and done with deliberate consent of your will. Missing Mass for no reason except your own laziness or slothfulness is grave matter. If it's done with full knowledge that it's grave matter, and it's done with deliberate consent of your will anyway, in other words, if all three elements of the mortal sin are present, then you've committed a mortal sin. If any one of those three elements is absent, you have a venial sin. We know from the New Testament there is sin that is deadly and sin that is not deadly. And Holy Mother Church spells out through her catechesis, based on sacred scripture, sacred tradition, the magisterium, the moral law. And to miss Mass through no fault but your own, through laziness or slothfulness, and to know it is a mortal sin, and to do it deliberately with your will is a mortal sin. And we want to stay away from that. It contravenes the first three of the Ten Commandments. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners this day and always and remain with you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, our celebrity associate producer, Zach Gagnon, our call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until then, God bless.